Welcome to the next in our online conversation series from St Paul's. My name is Paul Gooder and I am Canon Chancellor and Director of Learning in the Cathedral. Today I'm talking to the Right Reverend Arun Aurora, who is the Bishop of Kirkstall in the Diocese of Leeds. Before that, he was Vicar of St Nick's in Durham and before that, Director of Communications for the Church of England. We're going to be talking about Aaron's new book, Stick With Love. And in our conversation, as usual, we range widely, but we're thinking about the importance of story and how stories begin to communicate something about the nature of faith. We also talk about some of the people that Aaron talks about in the book, from Stormzy to Santa, and reflect on how their stories tell us something very important about faith and about the faith journey. We also hear something about Aaron's own faith journey and towards the end of the conversation. We had a great conversation and we hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having it with Aaron. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us this morning. And um, we're going to talk about something which is one of my favourite subjects, which is Advent. And I know you and I both share a passion for Advent. Tell me a little bit about why you love Advent so much. I think Advent, uh, as well as being the start of the church's year liturgically and entering into that new space, I think Advent's a time to prepare. There is that sense of um, both looking forward and looking back at Advent. Of course, looking forward uh, in preparation to the coming of the light into the world at Christmas, but also uh, that sense of uh, looking back, not only over the past uh, year in terms of the calendar space, but also looking back at God's faithfulness as we come to Advent. Of course, we're looking forward to the fulfilment of God's promises in Jesus coming into the world. But there's also for all of us individually that sense of reflecting upon God's faithfulness in our own lives and in our own journey. Um, Almost uh, the pause, uh, I think it's been described somewhere as a spiritual MOT, uh, that time uh, to reflect on the presence, the action of God in our own lives, in our own spiritual walk with him, uh, and almost undertaking that period of reflection, uh, not simply to look back, uh, to review without purpose, but to do so in the light of what's to come. So marking that step in the onward journey. And have you got any top, top tips about how you do it? Because I know that um, when people say to me, you know, Advent, it's a real time for spiritual reflection. I want to say, but I'm running like a madwoman around um, trying to get everything done, um, getting ready for Christmas, going to all the Christmas carol services. You can't possibly expect me to do another thing. Um, have you got any tips about how people can cram that into the busy season coming up to Christmas? I think part of it is taking what happens at church on Sundays during Advent. Mm -hmm. So as we mark uh, each of those Sundays, uh, the prophets, uh, John the Baptist, uh, the patriarchs, Mary, as we consider that journey to almost reflect what they mean to us. I mean, if you take um, the patriarchs in the sense of the shape of God's story, uh, where it began, where it's going, uh, where we are in uh, tarmac 
um, Tom Wright's famous uh, five-act play analogy uh, about the story uh, of salvation and where we are in the midst of that. I think what happens in church on Sundays in a way marks out those different uh, parts of the story and provides us with a basis to reflect not only on that wider narrative, but also internally upon ours. So if it comes to the prophets, where is the prophetic in our own walk with God? How are we responding to that uh, when we consider uh, John the Baptist and his call and his sacrifice? Uh, where is that in our own lives? So both recognising what has been, but also the call as to what is to come, um, not only with uh, Christmas and celebrating that, but in our own journey. How is it lived both in light of the coming of Christ, uh, both at Christmas, but also that second coming? And the sense of, uh, with that in mind, with that in view, uh, as we tell the church's story again, the wider church, uh, the uh, historical universal church, as we tell that story, our own place in it, and being able to uh, almost narrow that down from that wonderful broad uh, narrative and story of salvation history through to that individual walk that we all have with God. Now, you've sent me off on a tangent with your reference to uh, Tom Wright's five-act play. Um, there'll be some people who don't, haven't come across it before. Do you want just to talk us through um, why that's important to you? I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting analogy for reading scripture, isn't it? Well, now, Paulie, you've put me on the test that I need to remember each of the five acts. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, uh, and I'm sure I will be corrected if I'm wrong, uh, there's creation, there's mm -hmm. fall, there's uh, exodus. There is uh, incarnation, and then there's the second coming. And if that is the five-act play, then we live between uh, Acts 4 and Acts 5, between the incarnation and the promise of Christ's return. And part of the important thing with that analogy is we know where the story ends. We know where we're going. We know um, that... We are living with the purpose of where that story ends. I think it's Desmond Tutu, most wonderfully, uh, when he was uh, preaching at St. George's Cathedral during the apartheid era, and when uh, a number of uh, soldiers had come in uh, and armed police standing around the walls of the cathedral uh, looking to arrest protesters uh, in a protest that had been happening before the service, they were in the cathedral. And as he preached, he turned to them and said to them, why not come onto the winning side? Because we know where the story ends. And I think it's that sense of living in light of that knowledge, that sure and certain promise of where our story ends in the triumph of God and recognising that we are living in that light and therefore how we live. Uh, living between that now and not yet. Um, that is the place in which we live. And that is the basis of hope. Uh, a hope that is realised uh, with every uh, glimpse of the kingdom that we see, but hope that will be fully realised. And that's a key theme for me of Advent. Yeah, 
No, I absolutely agree. And if I can just add in another little bit that I really like about the five act play is that because we're living between X4 and X5, um, the analogy that's sometimes used by Tom um, is that um, we're, we're like a, um, a, a troop of actors who are called to act in a play. Um, but what happens is um, that you have the first four acts, but then it, the play stops. And the question is, as the troupe of actors, what do you do next? Um, and I just kind of love the idea that no, Tom brings in that actually what you then do is because you know the first four acts and you know what has happened, and you know where it's going, you know what the end is going to be, then you improvise um, the next bit. And I just love that idea of faithful improvisation. And it kind of chimes so well in with Advent, doesn't it? That what yes. we're doing as we're preparing is we're improvising the story of faith in our own lives. And I think that sense of uh, what does gospel improvisation look like? What does kingdom improvisation look like? Uh, both and I think the, the reason why they're important is that as, and particularly now, um, we can be tempted to despair as we look around uh, uh, both at some of the things that are happening domestically, but particularly internationally, uh, that knowing uh, both what has gone before, but also what's to come, uh, there is the invitation within that improvisation to uh, act in a way that ushers in the kingdom. The kingdom improvisation uh, points to the possible rather than to despair, to the hopeful, uh, rather than to the cannot be done or the cynical or the nothing changes. It's that opportunity to actually uh, work within God set parameters. And that, I think, brings us very nicely onto the book that you've written for Advent, because one of the things that's um, really unusual about it for an Advent book, and one of the reasons I loved it so much, is that you've chosen to tell stories of people, whether they be from a really long time ago, or in fact, a few people that I know. Um, and that was what a real treat going through the book, going, oh, look, look, it's Jemima, <laughs> which was really great. Um, can you just tell us why you chose to do that because it feels as though there was some kind of there was I'm, I'm it, it's clear as you read the book but just tell us your thinking as you were thinking about how to write the book well of course I think um the one thing that people when it comes to faith and reflecting on advent and its meaning the one thing that it, in some senses that is most true is story um it's the thing that when uh, it comes to uh, apologetics when it comes to talking about faith um we can argue about intellectual proofs, we can talk about the scientific method, we can talk about all kinds of uh, different philosophical approaches to faith, but the one thing uh, that people can't argue with is your story. And I think it's the power of story uh, at its heart, and uh, in the book, being able to tell the stories of faithful Christian women and men, and the way that they uh, inspire, uh, have inspired me, so both those during December who we mark in the lectionary, um, yeah, be it uh, the founder of Saved Children, uh, uh, the man who went from saint to Santa, uh, whether it's uh, uh, St. John uh, of the Cross and the Dark Night of the Soul, that uh, their stories 
are inspirational and one of the reasons why as a church we commemorate them but alongside them almost in the Pauline uh, understanding of what a saint is uh, those uh, women and men who we know today uh, women and men of the faith whose stories have inspired me so in many ways the choice is a personal one uh, it's people who have inspired me sat alongside people who uh, the church commemorates but at its heart it's all about story uh, and recognizing the way that God has acted in people's lives but also the way they have responded to the love of God and I think each of those stories uh, in some ways points away from them and to God in revealing the character of uh, a faithful God and the way that inspires uh, people and the way that in hearing those stories we ourselves are inspired not only to imitate but actually also to ask questions of ourselves and you'll know as part of the book stories are told and then questions are asked and some of those are challenging um what do we do uh, with unanswered prayer with those uh, women such as leah sharabu who we have been praying for for freedom for years who was kidnapped as one of the Dutchy girls in nigeria by boko haram many of the girls were released leah was not because she refused to recant her faith because she refused uh, to convert to Islam and as such uh, has been held captive ever since. And her parents who cry out uh, to the global church for prayer, for us who cry out to God and say, how long? Uh, what do we do in such situations? Uh, not only for people like Leah, but also uh, with their situations in our own lives. And um, these are questions that we all hold and all struggle with and are worth uh, returning to during times of Advent alongside those examples of uh, prayers that have been answered, uh, stories of women who again held for their faith, who have been freed, uh, be that Asaya Bibi, Helen Bahan, uh, others where uh, those prayers have been answered. So since you've raised that question, I think we probably need to pursue it a little bit. Um, how do you answer the question of what do you do with unanswered prayer? And where do you go with that? Uh, I go to the Psalms. It's uh, inevitably, I think, where you go. One of the joys for me, uh, devotionally, of the Psalms is are their raw honesty. Uh, that um, questioning of how long that coming to God in a place of despair, exile, be that physical or spiritual, uh, that place of uh, shaking your fist at God, crying out to God and saying, really? Really this? And asking uh, God, um, really, fundamentally, uh, why in the midst of all of this uh, do I find myself where I am to these people whom I love? find themselves in there and as Paula you will know this uh, particularly but the whole Walter Brueggemann approach of Psalms of uh, orientation disorientation reorientation the constancy that despite uh, the despair the reality of uh, prayers unanswered that assertion and yet I will still praise you 
And yet you are still God. And yet you are the God who led us out of exile, who parted the Red Sea, who brought water from the rock. And yet I will still praise you, even though before my eyes, the here and now, I cannot see you act where my heart longs for you to act. So I think there is certainly that, and certainly where I go, and alongside that, Jesus' instructions about uh, the persistent widow, about the role of prayer, um, both in intercession and petition, but actually also just in sheer and raw honesty. Uh, I think that bringing before God all of who we are, recognising the mess, that we may be in, certainly that the world may be in, um, and seeking uh, prayerfully, honestly, and with heart intent, uh, God's intervention in it. Thank you. Um, let's turn to some of the stories in the book now. Um, we've got a bit serious, haven't we? So let's go to a, a lighter <laughs> note. Um, tell us how you chose, because there, there have been such a lovely selection of different people that you talk about. Um, how did you choose them? Uh, I, it really was, I mean, starting off with the lectionary and starting off with uh, the women and men that we uh, celebrate during December and saying, well, look, these are stories I want to start. I mean, some of those stories were new to me recently, uh, you know, as recently as uh, 2014. Um, and this is where I'm going to trip up, Paula, because I can never pronounce her name right. But a Gantaline Jeb. Uh, the founder of Save the Children, and I'm sure I've mispronounced it, even though I've written the chapter. Uh, Gantaline, uh, an extraordinary woman who did so much, um, whose work is still now uh, in the Charter of the UN uh, and uh, around the right to the child began with all that Agantaline Jeb did with Save the Children, the founder of Save the Children, and in such a short life. But it wasn't until the consecration of Libby Lane, not even the consecration, in fact, the announcement of uh, Libby Lane as the first uh, woman bishop uh, at the press conference uh, that we organised when I was working in communications for the Church of England, uh, that took place in the Diocese of Chester, that that was on the day that the church commemorated uh, Agantaline Jeb. And uh, Libby uh, said, on this day, when we recognise this remarkable woman, of all that she did and achieved, inspired by her faith, uh, that actually it was such an honour for Libby to say that it was on that day that her name was announced. But I think the important thing there about uh, Agantaline being inspired by her faith is that if you were to now go to the Save the Children website or uh, uh, look at those organisations that she founded, uh, Agantaline's faith has been um, airbrushed out uh, in her story. And so it's important when remembering her to uh, put the faith back in, to put God back into the story uh, and that would be true I think not just of her but when you think of um, organizations like Amnesty International and Peter Benenson, uh, the story of Oxfam uh, and the then Archdeacon of Oxford uh, and what he did, uh, Chad Vara, the Samaritans, uh, the uh, plethora 
of people, Dame Cecily Sanders and the worldwide hospice movement. All of these uh, organisations founded by women and men who, of faith. And when you now go on, uh, Henry Dunant and the Red Cross, when you look at their uh, websites now, or, or look, that um, reference to the way that in living out their faith, these disciples of Christ, uh, their actions led to uh, fruits that transform the world. That actually that motivation, that uh, reason, that motivation for them doing what they uh, have done, really being uh, erased and airbrushed. So in telling these stories again, some of the stories, uh, part of it is recognising uh, the way that Christ uh, was the centre of what they did and their motivation uh, as prophets in their own way. So there are some uh, that we all commemorate and perhaps do within the lectionary. And then there are those that are really, Paula, just about uh, people I have come across that have shaped me and formed me, or people that inspire me now. Um, Stormzy, who uh, finds uh, a place in the book, and particularly um, what he did at the end of Glastonbury in 2019, uh, and did recently again, uh, the festival All Points East, where he finishes his set with his song, Blinded by Your Grace, and introduces it by saying, we're going to go to church. I'm going to take you all to church, and we're going to give God the glory. We're going to give God all the glory, and then invites tens of thousands of people, many of whom will have nothing to do with the church or with faith, to join him in singing, uh, Lord, I was broken. You found me. You fixed me, and now I'm blinded by your grace. And to hear tens and witness tens of thousands of people speaking, singing about the glory of God, even if they didn't know, almost like the Athenians on Mars Hill, what it is that they're worshipping. Um, there is a, a wonderful part of that. And then looking to his own story and the way that uh, God is central to what he does, the way he lives that out, in he uh, walks the walk in the amount of money that he gives away uh, to charitable organisations and recognises explicitly. He says, I give this away because I've been blessed by God. And I understand if I receive, I take and I share. And to do that is inspirational. And at the same time, because of the nature of his music, because of how he was raised in an urban environment, uh, with uh, gang culture and his first album um, Gang Signs and Prayer really reflects this. He says because of who I am, where I've been uh, brought up. Uh, the language that he uses, Paula, is, is probably, uh, there aren't that many songs that could be played in our churches or cathedrals uh, that wouldn't raise an eyebrow or two. Uh, and I don't even uh, uh, refer to the language uh, in our conversation. Um, and yet, here is someone who is seeking to be authentic in his faith, to speak about the way God has formed him, continues to form him. In his latest album, talks about the Holy Spirit, sings about the Holy Spirit and the way the Spirit leads him, alongside then having a track that um, would uh, defeat a bleeper machine in terms of the number of times it would have to be employed. And there is something about uh, being a missionary 
to modern culture and to some of the people who will listen to Storms' music, where he learns the language or has been brought up in the language of that environment, as we would encourage missionaries to do, being sent overseas and traditionally have done. Say, learn the language of the culture where you're going to proclaim the gospel. Um, I think Stormzy does that, but sadly, the language he uses is something that for many people is too much of a stumbling block. So you've told us a story of someone who's very modern, Stormzy, and you've told us um, a story of somebody who founded Save the Children. Um, do you want to tell us, let's finish off with a third one of someone from history. Um, give us an example of someone you've picked from history who um, um, has inspired you. Um, I think um, having served uh, in Durham at a church named after St Nicholas, uh, then of course Nicholas of Myra, uh, who uh, we now know, or most people will uh, see, uh, transformed as Santa Claus. But Nicholas, who's um, the legend attached to Nicholas, I love. Uh, not least because of his absolute commitment to who he understood Jesus to be. So St. Nicholas, uh, so legend has it, at the Council of Nicaea, was so incensed by Arius, uh, arguing effectively against the full divinity of Christ, that uh, Nicholas was so enraged by this that he uh, strode across the room and slapped Arius uh, in the face. Now, um, this is not to advocate violence in any way, uh, but uh, uh, for that, he himself, Nicholas, for committing an act of violence before the emperor, um, was uh, jailed, stripped and beaten, but finally uh, released. But part of what um, he stood for in his acts of love and charity in Myra, uh, in modern day Turkey, uh, really was um, living out the gospel of Christ, not least in his charitable acts towards children. Uh, and it is there, uh, from there, that we have the celebration of him, not least uh, in the Netherlands and Belgium and uh, some of the countries there of Sinterklaas that then led to Santa Claus and uh, his transformation uh, via American advertising agencies and uh, American magazines to a portly man in uh, a red costume with fur and a nice hat. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I think for me, and it, it, it's something I'd love to see happen this year, and uh, I'm going to try and work on it, is to try and reclaim something of uh, St. Nicholas's feast day, which is the 6th of December, to try and encourage people to follow him uh, in what has become Secret Santa. So you'll know the that Secret Santa is something a lot of us perhaps have indulged in, in schools, in workplaces, in offices. But for the 6th of December, for St. Nicholas Day, to be a day when we engage in doing that, um, perhaps not just with the people we know and in the context we know, but to be generous to people in need who perhaps we don't know, uh, to follow him in that way. There's a particular uh, Christian charity called Acts 435, um, which is like an eBay for giving, which I, I was a trustee of. And I love the fact that it's very simple. People 
uh, in need, sometimes in very desperate need, can come to a church uh, that's involved and say, please, can you help? That church can post that need on a website, uh, the Act 435 website, and anybody can give to a person in need. And the title of that charity, Act 435, is taken from uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 35, of the early church giving to everyone uh, who was in need and that sharing of possession. So um, a way that an ancient saint, you know, uh, ancient enough, uh, can still be used as an inspiration for uh, us being able to live out uh, the gospel in that way, uh, modelled by the early church. That's something that we can do now. I think that's a fabulous idea. I'm, I'm much relieved, may I say, that that's what you're taking as inspiration, not um, the 6th of December as a day for going around slapping people we think are heretical. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that might be a busy day. And I, think, I think I might end up quite red-cheeked on the end of the day yes, myself. Right. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think not to encourage We'll that leave that good. one aside. We won't do that one. <laughs> but I love the idea of the Acts 435. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, and... I'd certainly, I'll, I'll certainly pick that up, um, that kind of idea that we can be secret Santas. Uh, so really, really great. So um, you've got these wonderful array of stories. Um, you must have had to leave someone out um, and you must have had to really wrestle. Um, who do you most regret leaving out? And what's the story that you really wish you could have squeezed in? Because we had a, an extra day of Advent to squeeze them in for. So uh, I'm going to do three very quickly, but keep it short. Uh, one is someone I know he's one who lives in the diocese of Leeds, and she's called Zahida Mallard. And Zahida's story is that of coming to faith uh, from a Muslim background. And as a result, uh, her family, um, and she's spoken publicly uh, uh, about this on her time in General Synod, uh, and her, uh, her family uh, disowning her, uh, having paid a very high personal cost for uh, taking the decision to follow Jesus and the way she has lived it out uh, in commitment, in faith. And I'll never forget one time uh, her telling this story in a tea room at General Synod in London to me and saying how she had lost all of her family because of her decision uh, to follow Jesus. And I said, but that must be so hard, not having family. And she said, well, look around. This is my family. And it's such a reminder uh, that we are joined together no longer by uh, biological ties or biological blood, but actually by the blood of Christ. So Zahida would be one. Um, Pastor Yusuf Nadakani from Iran, who has been imprisoned for his faith on multiple occasions, but has consistently, as an evangelical preacher in Iran, leader of house churches, who has given up so much, that has consistently uh, declared his faith in Christ. Again, uh, had the opportunity to recant, to deny, to get himself out of prison, to reduce prison sentences, but every time has stood by his faith and inspired uh, a generation and led a generation of women and men. And I think thirdly, uh, and again, it would be in some ways a case of unanswered prayer, and that would be uh, Father Stan Swami, a wonderful Jesuit priest 
in India, who uh, died uh, a couple of years ago, the oldest person to have been arrested under and jailed under India's anti-terrorism laws, uh, was held on bail, never convicted, uh, had Parkinson's, suffered from COVID, and was imprisoned for standing up on behalf of the poorest of the poor in northern India, whose uh, rights and livelihoods were being undermined by corporate interests. And Father Stan, uh, a lifetime of standing up on behalf of the most dispossessed, and who died uh, without um, justice in prison, awaiting freedom, uh, but whose story of commitment uh, remains an inspiration. So those three. Uh, that's fabulous. It sounds like you need a volume two to uh, put in the people you couldn't do in volume one. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll wait for the Archbishop York to invite me to write next year's and, uh, <laughs> and then we'll do that. So Paula, let's put the bid in now. Uh, Absolutely. Send a copy of this to him. <laughs> I hope he's listening and see where we go. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I mean, I imagine after reading all of these stories all the way through Advent, you're hoping that people might be able to tell a little bit of their own story, that it will kind of pull out their own story from them. Um, is that what you're thinking about? And what if somebody was inspired to do that, what kind of things would you say to them about being learning to tell their story of faith? Absolutely is what um, I would hope would be one of the consequences. Uh, of this. I mean, we read in 1 Peter that the need always to have and to be ready to explain uh, the hope that is within us and to do so respectfully, gently, purposefully. And I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think there's a situation where um, when it comes to your story, no one can argue with it. They can um, say, look, I don't believe in God because of X, Y, or Z, or I've got these issues about um, suffering or theodicy or doctrine. Um, but our own stories of how we have responded to the love of Christ, how we have met him, whether that's been um, something that's been with us all our lives, whether there have been Damascene moments of conversion, the one thing people can't argue with is our story. And I think our testimonies, our testimonies, not only um, do they relate to our own experience, but in some ways they're an affirmation of that, of our sisters and brothers, of the way uh, the Christ has worked, not only in our own lives, but affirms the way that God has called and worked in the lives of others. So I think it has that dual purpose, both to... Um, enable us and legitimise our own story, explain our uh, own encounter with God and the difference that has made in our lives, how it is that it makes us us. But also, I think uh, the way that that affirms gives room for other people to tell their story. And I think there is something about that um, for each of us, that being able to articulate, and sometimes it can be difficult, and I don't underestimate that um, it's something that so easily uh, trips off the tongue. But being able to articulate how it is we know 
God, how it is um, that we are known by him and the difference that that makes. Uh, and that essentially that makes all the difference uh, to who we are, that our first identity uh, as new creations is in Christ. And uh, from that, everything else flows. I'm going to be sneaky now and ask you a question I didn't tell you I was going to ask you. Um, would you like to tell us your story um, about how you learned, discovered that? Because it feels like that's what needs to happen now. So uh, I wasn't born into a Christian household. Uh, my mom uh, is Hindu. My dad was from a Sikh background. And um, Paula, uh, as I was born in that divine city of Birmingham, it was only natural. Uh, that would support my local football team, uh, Aston Villa Football Club, which when I uh, mention this in Leeds, usually gets a boo. Uh, but growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, I was never allowed to go to Villa Park. And part of the reason for that was, uh, at that time, the far right, the British National Party and the National Front, ran a really good trade in recruitment at football grounds. And I think my mother quite rightly thought that a football ground uh, wasn't the right place for a chubby uh, young Asian boy to be if she weren't going to then end up picking me up from accident and emergency, uh, the worse for wear. So um, I had never had the opportunity to go uh, and uh, worship at Villa Park. And then one day, walking home from school, I noticed that a church, the church near us, had a poster saying um, that some guy called Billy Graham would be speaking at Villa Park, that they were laying on coaches to go and see him, and that the coaches would be free. Now, Paul, I, I really didn't um, have much of an idea of who Billy Graham was, but I did know there were coaches going to Villa Park, and I did know they were going to be free. So I badgered my mum to let me go, and in the end, she agreed, and I had my opportunity to go on that pilgrimage and worship at uh, Villa Park. And when I got there that night, um, Billy Graham talked about Jesus. He talked about a new life in Christ. He talked about uh, the forgiveness of sin and the goodness of God. He talked about the cross, the resurrection, the triumph uh, of Jesus. And at the end of uh, his speech he said to people if you are ready to invite Jesus into your life come on down onto the pitch and prayer prayer of commitment so I stood up I looked at my mum and I said can I go and she said it's up to you you want you make the decision you want to go you go and Paula I took a step onto that hallowed turf onto the pitch at Villa Park and um invited Jesus into my life and I'll never forget getting home that night being absolutely buzzing um, just uh, talking to God as if he was in the chair right next to me while I lay in bed just full of the Holy Spirit and absolutely buzzing but the funny thing was after that I didn't go to church Paula for three years and um, it wasn't because I didn't want to it was because I didn't know how to. I didn't know anyone who went to church. 
I didn't know any Christians. And self-conscious teenager, I didn't want to go to a place where I didn't know what to do, when to stand up, when to sit down, to get it wrong. So I didn't go. And it wasn't until three years later uh, when a friend of mine um, invited me to a youth club, uh, a Baptist church where his sisters went, uh, that I started my journey of going, uh, of church going, that led a couple of years later to my baptism. That's fabulous. Thank you. That's um, I, I knew bits of that, obviously, um, but people who don't know, um, um, Aaron and I first knew each other in Birmingham, so I knew kind of all the good Birmingham bits, um, but I didn't know kind of the full story. So really lovely to hear it. Um, so let's, um, as we're coming to an end, um, return yes. to the theme of Advent and Christmas and just kind of um, wrap that up um, before we kind of finish our conversation. Um, Obviously, um, Advent doesn't mean anything without Christmas. But mm. I wonder, actually, from our conversation and how we're beginning to talk, actually, whether we would possibly both want to say that Christmas doesn't mean much without Advent? I think that's true in the sense of um, the reflection on the promises of God fulfilled. That actually Advent uh, is a reminder of the promises that God made to his people uh, for uh, that salvation history, of which Christmas is part of that uh, revelation in the coming of Christ, in the entering of the light uh, into the world, in uh, those words from John's Gospel that we hear at Christmas, that God comes and pitches his fleshy tent amongst us uh, and enters into human history. That, that, that without those promises, without that sense of purpose, without that sense of plan that Advent uh, reminds us of, there, is a, there isn't necessarily uh, the sense of all that is and is to come in the second coming of Christ that Advent uh, reminds us of, uh, that the Parisia, that coming again of Jesus, that actually that sense of looking forward to the story being fulfilled, to that fifth act uh, coming, uh, that actually uh, as part of that, that's why a Christmas that is fullest also does need Advent. Brilliant place to end. Thank you, Aaron, so much for talking to me today. And Paula, it's so good to see you again, not least to reflect on Birmingham days. Uh, Absolutely. But, <laughs> but it's been a joy to be with you. Thank you.